you're listening to the Pomerado Christian Church Sermon Podcast. Thank you for spending time with us today. If you're a weekly listener, welcome back. If this is your first time, we're so glad you're here and hope you consider subscribing. If you're in your car, on a run, doing things around the house, or working out, and want to connect even further and take next steps with us, visit pomerado.info. Now, enjoy this week's message. Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see all of you who are here with us in person. I want to welcome those of you who are joining us online, whether it's your very first time with us, whether you've been with us for years, just know you were prayed for, cared for, and loved before you showed up, before you turned on your screen. Uh, and I believe that each person who hears my voice is someone that uh, God created and loves, that Jesus died for, and that the Holy Spirit wants to draw closer to God today. And so um, as we continue in our series called The Armor of God, um, you know, when we come to church, we often will ask, you know, hey, how are things going? How was your week? And, you know, sometimes it's like, oh, things are fine or working on this or doing that. So uh, this past week was a very uh, difficult week for me, a very odd week, um, unexpected week um, and stressful week. So um, about a week and a half ago, so about 10, 11 days ago, um, I started feeling my heart palpitating a little bit more than extra or more than usual. It's beating, which is good, but the too much beating is the problem, right? And so uh, it was for a few days I could just feel, and I have my uh, Apple Watch here, and it will show kind of as the heart rate elevates and things like that. And so there'd be times where I would feel it, and I would just feel this, this really hard beating, and then I would look down at my watch, and it had gone from like 70 beats per minute to like 105 beats per minute. So I'm like, okay, that's not normal. So I tried to breathe and calm down and slow down, but you know, as each day came, it was continuing to happen. I spoke with someone, um, one of the, a doctor who attends here, and I was going to get like a, a machine just to kind of keep an eye on how things were going and, and just to like monitor it. But I was just sharing, you know, here's some of the, the symptoms. And, and so Monday, I wasn't feeling well. I was feeling it hard. So then I called my primary. I said, hey, can I set up an appointment? And that appointment um, ended up being for this coming Thursday. So it was about, you know, 10 days later. And then Tuesday comes, and Tuesday, uh, we're praying about it in our staff prayer time that we have every single week, and then as we're praying, as, I, as this time of prayer is ending, I feel my heart going really fast again. Now, here's why this is specific, uh, specifically difficult or um, uh, just hard for me, is that my, I'm 39 years old, um, I know you're thinking, you don't look a day over 40, so thank you, um, and so 39 years old, and so my dad had his first heart surgery. He had a triple bypass when he was 36. He had a um, quadruple when he was 50, 51-ish, right around there. And then his younger brother, so my uncle, passed away from a heart attack in his 50s. So when I start thinking about a heart attack and I start thinking about heart problems, like I'm looking down and I was driving over to the doctor's house to pick up this machine and I was at... um, uh, Twin Peaks and Pomerado Road. And it was one of those where to go to, to where she was, I'd have to go straight onto Twin Peaks and go up, and, or I could go left and go north on Pomerado, the hospital. And as I looked down, my watch says that my heartbeat was at 166 beats per minute. And so it was like, I start feeling lightheaded and, and not feeling great. So I pull over and I turn around and I go to the hospital, let her know that I'm going. I let Steph know. And um, you know, I, I was just, the heart, my heart was beating. I was starting to feel really lightheaded, feeling woozy. Uh, I was still trying to like have my manners. So, you know, there's no parking spots. And I'm like, 
to the security guard. I'm like, sir, I don't feel very good. Where do I park? And he's like, well, there's a nice parking spot in Escondido. No, I'm just kidding. He didn't say that. He, he said in the, in the parking structure, you know, second floor north right down here. So I go there. I get lost because there's a pedestrian. It just took a while. Uh, I get there and they, you know, they take me back right away. They did a fantastic job. Um, they, everyone there was gracious and helpful and patient and great. And so they did the full diagnostics. They did an EKG. They did, um, they like kept the little patches on me to like keep me up, hooked up to a monitor. They did blood work. They did all these different things. And then they had me attached to the monitor so that they're hoping that they could get one of those, you know, strong palpitations while I was plugged in so they could get an idea of what was going on. But inevitably, just like when you have a car that makes a weird sound and you bring it to the mechanic, nothing happens, right? Just just like when you tell the doctor you have pain and then they say, well, where does it hurt? You're like, well, it used to hurt here, but now that I'm here, I don't know. So nothing happened. So I didn't get any of those uh, specific palpitations uh, during that visit there. So we were there, and, and so part of me is like, is this psychosomatic? Is this all in my head? But that really is happening, but what's going on? And the more I become anxious about it, does that help my heart rate? No. The more you become anxious about it, the more you focus on it, the more it intensifies. And so I think what happened is by the time I got to the hospital, was plugged in, everything was um, working, and then I'm like, okay, if anything were to happen to me, I'm already here, so I'm not worried anymore. Ergo, I didn't have one of those problems. Now, I was plugged to the machine for a few hours. Uh, they did the full, again, like diagnostic. Doctor came in and was like, the good news is, is that, you know, everything checks out. Your, your blood work checked out as normal. Your EKG shows no sign of arrhythmia. You are, everything else seems to be fine. So he's like, I believe something's going on, but it's something benign, not an emergency. Uh, so it's good you came in. And it's one of those where you already have a follow-up appointment. So just keep that appointment. And so even after I left, um, I had this moment where it was just this time where I, um, even when my heart would start beating uh, harder, um, I would have this moment, okay, you're okay. You've been checked out. Everything's fine. And you just try to breathe your way through it. I've never had a panic attack before. I don't know what that's like. So I don't know what that all was, but it's one of those where I remember after I heard back from the doctor that things were okay, I was getting ready to tell Steph that I was going to head home and everything. Um, because when you're in my position where uh, you have the honor to preach God's word and you have the honor to be um, in this role, you recognize that you are, um, you are prone to be used as sermon illustrations at any and every time. And so I sent this text to Steph after I'd been there for a few hours, and it says this, it's about, if nothing else, I guess I'll have a pretty good sermon illustration about the breastplate of righteousness and the need for protecting our hearts. And Steph sweetly responded, that's exactly what I was thinking. And that I'd rather you not have this illustration. Uh, that's what I was thinking too. I mean, I'm fine with being used as an illustration, but this is a lot. Yes, it is. This week was a lot. Some of you come into this week and it's a lot. Some of you, you may not have the physical heart palpitating right now. Maybe some of you, there's an anxiety that you recognize. The more you think about it, the less it's helping. The recognize, maybe for some of you, it's just this idea of there's a lot going on. And so you're feeling it right now. And what we're going to talk about today is the breastplate of righteousness is to what does it mean for us to guard our hearts? The fact that I'm talking about guarding your heart and in the ER for a heart palpitations in the same week is not lost on me. But what I want to express today is that wherever you are, whatever you're experiencing, if we have this right relationship with Jesus, then it's important for us to understand 
What is righteousness? Because it's a big word that has a few different meanings that maybe we can get lost in. What is it that, why is Paul call righteousness a breastplate? Why is that the verb which he used? How is it that Satan tries to attack our hearts? And then what is it that we can do to guard our hearts? Because as we know from Proverbs 4.23, guard your heart for is the wellspring of life or guard your heart for out of it everything flows. If that's true for our physical heart and if that's true for my physical heart, I need to take care of my physical heart. How much more so is that true for our spiritual heart? How much more so is that true for mine and for yours? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for each person who's part of our service today, whether live in person, live online, watching or listening later. Lord, we thank you for the fact that you are with us now. We thank you for the fact that our hearts are beating, that you've given us this day, Lord, that you've breathed life into us, that this is a day you've made. We rejoice and are glad in it. Lord, your faithfulness is great to us each and every morning. And so, Lord, as we maybe enter into this time together May we receive what you have for us. I pray that as we dive into it, I would decrease, that you would increase, that you would speak in a personal, powerful, impactful way to each and every one of us, Lord, as we talk about guarding our hearts. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're going to be in, in Ephesians 4, uh, in Ephesians, the end of Ephesians 4 and Ephesians 5. I'm going to read uh, actually a lot of the passage right now. Um, that way we could, we'll, we'll read the whole thing and then we'll talk about certain pieces or certain, certain parts of it, excuse me, throughout it. So last week we ended on the idea from Ephesians 4, 24, the idea that, or 23, the idea that we needed to put off the old self that we needed to dress the part. We need to put on the new self. We need to identify. We need to get rid of the old self. We need to identify deceitful desires, right? Then we need to renew our mind, and then we need to dress the part. And those words were gird, and it was the idea of we gird our loins or we gird ourselves with truth. Talking about the belt of truth last week. This week, we're going to jump and pick up in verse 24 right after that, and we're going to read all the way through Ephesians 5, 9. So it's not going to be on the screen, so I encourage you to follow along, whether in your own Bibles, on the Bible app, or we have Bibles available in the seat racks in front of you. So here's what the word of the Lord says, starting verse 25 of Ephesians 4. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. There's that idea of truth again. For we were all, are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality, or of any kind of impurity, or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of God, or kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Remember, truth deception, we've been wrestling with that the past two weeks. 
Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. So we're going to land here on this idea of goodness. It means good. It also has a propensity the word means to be generous. Then truth, we've been talking about that last week. And then today, we're going to land on righteousness. So one question we're going to ask today is, what is righteousness? We hear this word a lot. We sing songs about it. We read it in the Bible. We we often think of righteousness as like self-righteousness, which is a bad thing. So what is proper understanding of righteousness? Warren Wearsby, in his book, uh, What to Word of the War, Studies in Ephesians 6, tells us this. Because in the Bible, we find two kinds of righteousness, imputed and imparted. Imputed righteousness is justification, that which God gives us by faith. Imparted righteousness is sanctification, that which we live out in our daily lives. So justification, sanctification, imputed, imparted, there's, these are bigger words. So let's try to take a moment to break it down a little bit more, or at least to, to give us a little bit of a different verbiage that might help us um, to take hold of it a little bit more. So the first one here is the idea of justification, or what they call imputed righteousness, shows us about our right standing in Christ. So when you trust, Priscilla Shire says this, when you trust Jesus as your personal savior, the penalty of sin is removed and the gift of God's own righteousness is given or imputed to you. It is credited to your spiritual account. The perfection and holiness of God himself has become yours in Christ. I like this definition. I love the idea that's talking about what is credited to us. If you've ever spent something and then you get a reimbursement for it and all of a sudden you look up and go, oh, I got credits on my Amazon account. I don't even know what happened. Or it's something that is credited, that is given onto your account. So what Romans 3 talks about, and I wish I had more time to unpack verses 21 through 26 in more in depth, but I do want to read parts of this here together, starting in verse 22. So this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. In this passage in Ephesians 5, we're just looking at, we talked a little bit about, or we saw the idea that Paul said, don't grieve the Holy Spirit because he has sealed you for redemption. So here's the thing. When we give our lives over to Jesus and we understand that God loves us and we've blown it, but Jesus paid for it and we receive him, then we have this experience in which Jesus is, all his righteousness is given or imputed or credited to our account so that we may have right standing before God. That when before our sins, when we have all the things we've done wrong, and then we look at all the things that you know, we, we fall short of, and then we recognize that we compare that to God's standard of perfection, his standard of being holy or set apart. We look at our laundry list, our, our Old Testament scroll of all the sins that rolls down the stage and out the door. And yet when we confess our sins, 1 John 1, 9 tells us, when we confess our sins, God is righteous and just to forgive us of our sins. And what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So when we go to Jesus, we we have a right relationship with him. We confess. Then we say, Father, forgive me. Or God, forgive me for what I've done. All that laundry list of all of our sins, there's just a stamp that says paid in full. 
It's credited. So all of Jesus's holiness, righteousness, faithfulness, love, that gets put upon us. It's imputed or credited to our account for we did not earn it and nor could we earn it, but we can receive it. And so when we look at this justification, it's a, it's, a, it's a bigger word to say that we've been justified freely by his grace, as Romans 3 mentions. And it shows us that once we've been justified, we have a right standing with God in the sense of our account has been accounted for. And God's, Jesus' righteousness has been credited to us, not because we've earned it or deserve it, but he freely gave it and we can receive it. So that's justification. Really brief. Of course, there could be much more said about that. But for the sake of our conversation today, we're going to go to sanctification, which is the idea of right living. It's the way, idea of living out your faith because you've been made new, because you have a right standing in God, because the Holy Spirit is in you. Now we live differently than we once lived before. And so Priscilla Shire says it this way, we put on the breastplate of righteousness by making a conscious decision and a firm, consistent resolve to, quote, cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light, which can be found in Romans 13, verse 12. Unlike imputed righteousness, which we just learned about, it's not a once-in-a-lifetime action. It is a moment-by-moment, day-by-day, repeated choice and action again and again. That means that because we've been right and we have a right standing, the Holy Spirit can empower us to live rightly. And that means rightly with him and God, with us and God, and then rightly with those around us. Doesn't mean there won't be conflict. Doesn't mean we won't fall short. It doesn't mean that we won't have times where we feel attacked by the enemy. What it means is that while justification happens at the moment of faith, it is credited to us, Jesus' righteousness, that he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God, as 2 Corinthians 5.21 says. That's once that happens. And then God is continuing to work, the Holy Spirit's continuing to work in and through us to make us more like Christ. And so she uses the verbiage imputed righteousness for justification. And then I like what she says. Instead of imparted righteousness, it sounds good, but it doesn't quite, it's a little harder to grasp. I like that Priscilla calls it practical righteousness. It's how do you practice? How do you live this out? So if we could summarize this or maybe give a really simple, probably uh, maybe not oversimplified, but maybe at its basic level, righteousness is two things. Righteousness is this idea of right living, sanctification, in light of our right standing in Christ. We have to have the right standing with Christ first in order to truly live righteously. But the idea, Tony Evans says, that the opposite of righteousness is wrongness. So we either have this choice to live for God and to do what's right, or to live for ourselves, to live for the world, to live for the approval of others, to pursue our own idols, and to do what is wrong. We're empowered by the righteousness that we receive from Jesus. And then the choice is each day, moment by moment, day by day, do we choose to walk in the light or to continue in the deeds of darkness? So real brief, what is righteousness? The second idea of why is righteousness viewed as a breastplate? Why, why is that what Paul talks about? So let's go to the next one here. What does Paul, or why does Paul refer to righteousness as a breastplate? Ephesians 6.14 says it this way. We read this verse last week as well. So stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. Remember, it's girded your loins with truth. The word belt or buckled is not, you know, it doesn't actually say belt anywhere. What it says is that your loins have been girded with truth. And then also stand firm then 
with the breastplate of righteousness in place. Now, the idea of the breastplate of righteousness, this isn't just something that Paul came up with because he thought it was really cool imagery. This goes back to Isaiah chapter 59, verse 17, in which God, embodied as the Messiah, wears his armor out to battle. The, the context is that no one will stand up against evil. And then it talks about how God will step in, and this is what he does. Verse 17, he put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head, which we'll hit on in a couple of weeks. He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak. I think Paul was probably wise not to have the garments of vengeance as part of the armor of God for us because we would probably take that the wrong way and be like, I'm mean to everybody and it's right. But the idea is that the righteousness, the, the, the breastplate of righteousness is God's armor. This is the armor of God given to us in order to face these battles both individually with personal attacks and things that go on when we're attacked by the enemy, but then also as the church, as the capital C kingdom of God, capital C church across the world. My, uh, it's something that it's his, that his, uh, it's God's that he passes down to us. This, um, I was looking for this recently. This is a ring that uh, my dad passed down to me a long time ago, well, a few, several years ago. And it's something where his parents gave it to him uh, to acknowledge his scholastic uh, achievement. I can't say the word scholastic, so surely I have not earned this. But um, this is the idea of it was they gave it to him to show like the, the appreciation when he was in high school. And it's something that he passed down to me. And I have to be fully uh, transparent. I was younger when I received it, and I didn't fully grasp how meaningful this was for my dad to pass it down. And so it was really, it was really meaningful when he's like, no, like this, this actually, you know, this means a lot to me. I, wa I want you to have it. And so it's something where I did not earn this, but it was something that his parents gave to him and now he has given to me. So I can wear it. Doesn't mean that I've earned the scholastic achievement, but I could wear it because it's my dad's and it's been given to me by my dad. The breastplate of righteousness, we might say, why does God need a breastplate? He is righteous. He doesn't need that. It's not because he needs it. He goes to battle, and because he is right, he can face any attacks. Because he is righteous, he can face any attacks. And he gives it to us, not because we've earned it. But we can wear it because it's our dad's. And because we recognize that it's been passed down so that we'd be prepared for battle. Here's a picture of a, a Roman breastplate. Um, you might hear in, in con some context that the breastplate was just on the front of the chest, and so it left the back exposed. Certain commentators would say, so this proves how we're not supposed to turn and flee from battle, because if so, we expose ourselves to uh, attacks from the back. However, the Roman, like this Roman soldier would have a, a, piece, a piece on the back as well. In fact, here's how it's described um, as A. 17 Wood says. He says, the breastplate, or the Greek word is thorax. If any of you dislike bugs as much as I do, you're aware that the thorax is the, the exoskeleton around the body there, like this part of the body. So the breastplate, the thorax, covered the body from the neck to the thighs. Polybius tells us that it was known as a heart protector. Usually it was made of bronze, but the more affluent officers wore a coat of chainmail. The front piece was strictly the breastplate, but a back piece was commonly worn as well. 
So why does Paul talk about righteousness as the breastplate? One, it's connecting to the Old Testament. Two, it shows us that this is God's armor that he has given to us, that we don't earn the righteousness on our own. We cannot make ourselves righteous in a right standing with God, but we can live out our lives righteously by having a right living in light of our right standing. But three, it shows us that because, he's, because it's his, we can wear it because God is our father. He's our dad. And he gave it to us because he knew that we would need a heart protector. Proverbs 4.23, as we mentioned earlier, reminds us, above all else, guard your heart. For everything you do flows from it. When I'm in that hospital trying to think through what this looks like and knowing my family history, I think to myself, what do I, God, I will do, what, what do I need to do to not have my heart be an issue anymore? How do I need to guard myself? And, you know, I know part of that is dietary. And, and Steph was mentioning things like, well, you can't have much cheese. And I said, well, the ER is actually pretty nice. Maybe I'll just, I don't want to give up cheese, but just kidding. Just recognize that above all else, guard your heart. So how? how what, is God, what does Satan do to attack our hearts? What does he do in order to come after us? And what happens when we leave ourselves open just a little bit susceptible to his attack? So how does Satan attack our hearts? We've been using this list throughout this series so far that Warren Wearsby um, and I worked on together, sort of. Uh, the enemy schemes, the number two is denial. Here's how Warren Wearsby discusses denial in his book. He says this, denial is another of Satan's tactics that he successfully uses against the Christian. He denies the faith. He denies the resurrection. He denies everything the word of God teaches us. He says, did God really say that? Does God really care about how you live? I mean, we just saw from Ephesians 4, he cares about the words of our mouth. He cares about sexual morality being nothing a part of us. He cares about how we interact with people. He cares that we don't let anger down or we don't let the sun go down on anger. He cares about how we speak, how we live, how we do everything. And so Satan says, well, you can do what you want. You can live how you want. Listen, God's word isn't for you. That was back then. And he denies the foundation of God's word. And he denies what Jesus has done. If he denies the resurrection, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, if the resurrection isn't true, then we ought to be pitied over more than anyone else because we've put our hope in something that is not true. And yet the resurrection is true. And yet the resurrection is our hope. And so the enemy... Satan loves to deny. The study Bible, Life Application Study Bible says it this way. Satan often attacks our hearts, the seed of our emotions, self-worth, and trust. God's righteousness is the breastplate that protects our hearts and ensures his approval. He approves of us because he loves us, is sent his son to die for us. It's not that we make ourselves righteous on our own. It's that he looks at our lives and he says they've been justified through faith in Christ and that laundry list of sins paid in full. And so he says, I, I approve you because I love you. I sent Jesus to die for you, and we are in a right standing together because of that. So in light of the health scare that I had and, and the upcoming appointment, which is uh, just in a couple of days as a follow-up, what are different ways that Satan attacks our hearts? And this isn't all of them, right? This isn't an all-inclusive, or excuse me, all-encompassing, but there are certain heart attacks that he comes after us with. The first one is the idea that he'll come to us and he acts as an accomplice, we mentioned this briefly a couple weeks ago, where 
Satan will convince you to do something that you know to be wrong. It's, you're sitting here and you're living out, trying to have practical righteousness. You either walk in the way of light or you walk in the way of darkness. And they say, hey, just come over here and check it out. The dark is fun. Like, this, just try it. You know, it's not that big of a deal. He comes alongside you to encourage you to choose the wrong things. He's like an accomplice when it comes to a crime. Ephesians 4, when we read it earlier, said this. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Do not give the devil a foothold. Now, when I first read this, I think of a foothold. So I think about, you know, maybe you're trying to, like, go rock climbing. And, you know, there's this idea of there's a foothold that you need in order to keep progressing up. And so don't give the enemy anything upon which he can stand or upon which he can attack or come after you. But the Greek for this word foothold is not what we would think of as foothold. It's the word tapas, which is where we get the word topography. So in other words, it's, it's a location. It's a place. It's a space. It's an area of space. And so when it says, do not give the devil a foothold, what it's saying is, do not give the devil any space in your life. Don't give him just a little bit. So um, when you think about someone who's fully armed, like has armor on, there are still weaknesses inside that. So I know I talk about Lord of the Rings probably 97% more than I should, but there's a scene with Helm's Deep and the two towers when Legolas, who's the, the, um, the elf, who's incredible at everything, but he's, he shoots, he's like, Hey, their armor is weak at the, at the under the arm at the base of the neck. And so in other words, it's weak where all armor is. But the idea is he knew exactly where to aim the arrow. And it didn't have to be a big gap. It was enough to do damage just with a little bit of space. When Steph and I and our family, before we moved down here, we lived in Upland. Uh, at my previous church, we were there. And um, there was one night, I forget exactly when it happened, but we were walking through the garage at night. And I remember... Um, hearing a sound that I don't love. And it's just like a little, and then it was a jumping into a box. And then it was just a loud noise. And I'm like, close the door, because I'm not that tough and manly. I'm like, honey, I think we have a rat in the back of the garage. And so we call the, we call the exterminator, and, and they take care of everything. And what they said was that, you know, this, this rat was pregnant. So if you did not catch it now, there would have been an infestation. And so um, here's where we think, well, okay, well, how do we, how do we guard off so that there's no space for a rat to enter into our home? And some of you may know this, some of you may not know this, but if you look at this picture here, because rats have collapsible ribs, they have the ability to fit into small spaces. So a rat can fit into a place, the space of a quarter. And a mouse can fit into the space, or fit into a hole with the space of a dime. And so we think to ourselves, first off, you're like, how soon is he going to be done so I can make sure that I don't have any quarter-sized holes in my house? But here's the thing. All the rat would need is a quarter space, and all a, all a mouse would need is a dime space in order to wreak havoc in your house. Do not let, Paul tells us this, do not let Satan have even a quarter space of a gap in your life. Not even a dime where he could just shoot that arrow exactly in the right spot to create havoc and an infestation in your life. He's an accomplice. If you give him a foothold, he will find the space and he will take you down. He will take me down. He'll take all of us down. Number two, not just does he serve as an accomplice, he serves as an accuser. 
This is the one where it gets me. I remember when I was younger, it was after Little League practice, and I'm not proud of this story, but it's part of my story. And I remember a, f a friend of mine, a teammate of mine, we were after practice, and um, I, I was a latchkey kid, so I would kind of come and go as I pleased in the afternoons after school. And so we had pine cones in this park where we would practice, and then there were cars that were passing by. And we were just th grabbing pine cones, just throwing them at cars as they were passing by. Again, I'm not proud of it, but it's real. And one car pulled over and like, hey, what are you doing? And I'm not proud of this moment, but I said, I don't know, but he was throwing pine cones at you. <laughs> and he just looks at me, Alex, his name was Alex, and he just looks at me and I'm like, yeah, I don't know. So in that moment, I was both accomplice. Hey, let's do, you know, I was part of it, right? And then I was also accuser. He did it. I, I tried to stop him. No, I didn't go that far, but I, but I did blame it on him. Accomplice and accuser. This is how Satan works. He wants to get you to do something. And then the second you choose to walk down the path of darkness, he goes to God and say, did you see what your son just did? Did you see what your daughter just did? Well, didn't you stop? Yeah, but I mean, oh, he, he chose it. She chose it. Friends, we need to be careful to guard ourselves up against his accusations. Warren Wearsby points across two specific ways and two specific um, gaps in our armor if we're not careful in which the enemy likes to attack. The first is he likes to accuse us of our past sins. He likes to remind us of what we've done in the past. We have those moments where we're trying to live for the Lord. And this is why oftentimes it's hardest for a Christ follower who didn't grow up in the faith or grow up in, in a Christian home and then comes to Christ later in their life. It's hardest for them to reach their own family of origin growing up because they say, I remember all the things you did. How could you claim to be forgiven? You did this and you did that and you were this way and that way. And so it's hard to do that. But he reminds us, Oh man, I can't believe I messed up that time. Oh, I can't believe that I said that or did that or thought that or lived that. He accuses of us of our past sins. Warren Wearsby talks about this. Says, Satan also works in our consciences, constantly reminding us of our past mistakes and sins. We need the breastplate of righteousness to ward off these accusations. If we do not remember that we have been justified and made righteousness, it was credited to our account, we will not have an answer for Satan's accusations. He would, he'd be able to just keep seeing you were an awful person. I can't believe you did that. I can't believe you said that. I can't believe you lived that. And we would just be arrow after arrow after arrow. If we don't remind ourselves that our righteousness was never our own doing. It's that he who knew no sin became sin so that we might have the righteousness of God. We might become the righteousness of God. I mean, we're reminded, Isaiah 64, 6 reminds us that our righteousness is as filthy rags. Our righteousness doesn't clean anyone or anything. And yet, when we have the righteousness, we've been justified. And we can look back at our past like, you're right. Satan, you're right. I've, I've messed up. Not proud of, that's part of my story, but it's part of my story but I've been redeemed. That list of all my sins has a stamp on it that says paid in full. He also, the enemy also likes to accuse us of our present struggles. 
the things that you are struggling with and I'm struggling with right now. And you say, how can you say you love Jesus when you keep falling into the same thing? How can you say you love Jesus when you still struggle? You still have the same trials and temptations that you've always had. How can you say you're a new creation when you seem to be a butterfly that likes to swim in the dirt? The enemy would just love to just throw these accusations at you over and over saying, you're not good enough. To which we respond, you're right. I'm not good enough, but it's not about my own goodness. It's about the fact that my righteousness comes from Jesus. I'm right standing. I have right standing because of him. And then while I'm on this earth, I'm trying to be sanctified. I'm trying to live a life that is living out my righteousness. But I'm going to stumble. You're going to stumble. I'm going to fall. You're going to fall. I'm going to struggle. You're going to struggle. And so we are fellow sojourners on the same journey. Recognize where there's times you're struggling and we, someone can help pick you up. And then vice versa, when they're struggling, you help pick them up. That you are not alone in this journey. And yet, if the enemy just keeps trying to attack and say, you're never good enough. There's nothing you can do. You should just give up now. We need to be able to discern the voice of the enemy and the voice of God. Would the voice of God ever tell us that you just need to give up? Would, would the voice of the enemy ever say, I know you've given up Go and sin no more. Go and do, do, don't sin any longer, but go. Neither do I condemn you. We need to know the difference. How do we know the difference? Priscilla Shire tells us about how the breastplate, when it was put on, was about 70 pounds. And so in order for the weight to be properly distributed, so not only would the soldier need to be able to wear that, but the soldier needs to be able to fight in the midst of that battle. And so she tells about how the breastplate would have um, connections to the belt so that the belt would be able to help carry some of the weight so that the, they would not be weighed down by their armor. And as she, she ties the point home, she talks about how our righteousness is supported by the truth. That if we know the belt of truth, we know what God says, and then we are, our righteousness is attached to that. And when those arrows come, not if, but when, when those accusations come, not if, but when, we stand firm, not because we've earned this armor, but this armor came from our dad and he gives it to us to be able to wear. Warren Wearsby says it this way, he says, God knows our struggles better than we do or Satan does. We can take these memories and feelings to him. What does the Lord do about them? He puts them under the blood of Jesus Christ. They're gone. But what about this thing I've done? We confess our sins. God is righteous and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Not the watered down bad things that we've done. All of it. Not the things that other people know about that we've shared with, but we've hidden us. All of it. We confess and he is righteous and just to forgive us of all our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I have just one last question left, and we'll go through the last section of Scripture. As we hammer home this last bit here, as we talked about, the fruit of light is goodness, righteousness. We've spent the majority of our time in truth. The question is, how do we guard our hearts? 
What do we do in order to protect ourselves from the enemy's being an accomplice and the enemy's accusations? How do we protect ourselves from these heart attacks? How do we make sure that we are healthy, that we are safe, that we have a proper understanding so that our heart can be safe because we need to guard our heart for out of our heart, everything flows. So we looked at this list earlier and we talked about how as you look at each of these things that the enemy likes to use to scheme against us, that there's a corresponding piece of the armor that is response to it. So righteousness is the response to denial. He's, he'll say, you're never good enough, you're not good enough. And you put on that breastplate of righteousness to say, I'm not, but Jesus is. And I'm wearing the armor that my dad gave me. So how do we guard our hearts? First thing, walk in love with Jesus. Here's where we look here, starting in verse uh, 8. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And so let's go ahead and go to the next slide, please. So you were once darkness, now you are light in the Lord. Now, verse 1 says it this way, so it's not on the screen, or verse 2 says this. Follow God's example as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us. So the first thing we do is we got to walk the way that Jesus walked. Now, you might be wondering, why did you use this verse here? Because this word live, and the majority of the times you see the word live in Ephesians, it's the exact same word as walk in Ephesians 5 verse 2. So there's no distinction between how we have our daily walk and how we live out our faith. As we walk, as we live, we are walking in the light and we're living as children of the light. So when you have that choice, when you're doing that moment where because of your right standing, now you have the choice of right living and being righteous and being, as Romans 6 talks about, to be instruments of righteousness. As 2 Timothy 3.16 talks about how the scripture is God-breathed and is useful as for training in righteousness. And so this is something we continue to grow into, lean into, and be stretched into. But we have to live, we have to walk in such a way that when the time of the moment comes, as Priscilla Shire says, it's a moment-by-moment, day-by-day decision. Do I walk and live in the light, or do I walk and live in the darkness? And so when we have that moment, we need to choose living in the light. Number two, what we do is we have to expose those deeds of darkness in our own lives. Continuing on, verse 11 says this, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness. They will literally, no matter how much the enemy wants you to think that darkness sounds good, that it's going to be fun or freeing or whatever it is, they are fruitless. Fruit can't grow in the dark. These are fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It's shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. So do you have someone in your life with whom you can expose the deeds of darkness? Those that you share with them, hey, this is a way that the enemy likes to accuse me of my present struggles and my past sins. This is a quarter or even a dime's worth of space that if I'm not careful, I've given over to be a space where the enemy can come in and he can launch his arrows. And if it's just right at the under the arm or at the crook of the neck, it'll get me. So do you have someone with whom you're accountable? 
with whom they can encourage you. And this is, to be clear, this is someone who loves the Lord too. Someone who else, who is also walking in the way of Jesus. So it's someone who has the same standard for how to live and what is holy according to God's sight. So do you have someone that you can share your struggles with? Someone that will hold you accountable. Someone that can encourage you in that. Someone that when you're down, they can pick you up. And when they're down, you do the same for them. Expose those deeds of darkness because the enemy loves to hide in the darkness. C.S. Lewis talks about this idea of rats in the attic. I don't know why everything's about rats today, but he talks about how if there are rats in the attic, if you go up and you make surprising, like if you are very loud and like they know you're coming, they'll hide and you won't even know they're there. But if you go quietly and you poke your head into the attic, the rats don't have a chance to escape. And the idea is that it's that suddenness of exposure that reveals the rats in our attic. When we could guard ourselves, protect ourselves, and make ourselves look okay, but when we recognize that when we get surprised by something, that's when the rats are seen because they don't have a chance to hide. So expose the deeds of darkness in your life with a trusted, godly brother or sister who could come alongside you in that. Number two, Excuse me, number three, act in wisdom. Live wisely, not unwise. He continues, verse 15, he says it this way. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. Wisdom and knowledge are different. Knowledge is you can know the right thing. Wisdom is applying what you know. It's, it's, it's practiced wisdom. It's practiced, it's applied knowledge. Make the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Act wisely. Do what you need to do. In fact, acting wisely will entail, allow you to expose deeds of darkness and to walk as Jesus walked. But the idea is live in such a way that you are acting in wisdom, acting wisely, that you know what's foolish, you know what's fruitless, and you say, I'm not walking down that path anymore. You know what's fruitful, and you know what's wise, and you say, that's the road I'm going to go. I might stumble on that road, I might struggle at times, but that's the path I'm on. And then lastly, receive your fill of the, of the Spirit. I love this idea of just the fact that when you're, when you're filled with something, when you are just, when it's to the point where you're just, oh, I'm just, I'm good. I'm, my life is overflowing. Sometimes we feel like when it comes to peace, we just have a little bit of peace. Other times we feel like we are overflowing with peace. Sometimes we remember that John 10 says that the enemy came to steal, kill, and destroy, but Jesus came that we may have life and life to the full, life abundant, life overpouring and overflowing. So receive your fill of the Holy Spirit. Paul concludes with this. He says, instead, be filled with the Spirit. Have your fill. He's available and wants to do the work in our lives, but he doesn't just want one room of our house. He doesn't want just the kitchen that looks nice. He doesn't just want the living room where everyone sees what's going on. He wants the attic too and all the rats there so that he can work and expose the deeds of darkness and so that our whole house, our whole lives point to him. Be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. When we are able to thank God even during difficult times, it is evidence of how much the Spirit has been filled in us. And so if you're thirsty 
And if you're, you're parched and you have an option to just get like, a, like one of those little four ounce, like tiny little cups of water, or you have the option to get like a you know, 32 ounce big gulp, and you're thirsty and you're parched and you choose the little one, and then you're still thirsty, it's not that the availability wasn't there for you. We just choose not to have our fill. Sometimes we just want a small dose of Jesus. Sometimes we just want a little bit of Bible study. Sometimes we just want like the right worship song at the right time, but otherwise we don't care. Sometimes it's we just want a little bit of Jesus on a Sunday morning for an hour or so. And then the rest of my life, when I don't have peace, when I don't, and when I'm not doing well, when I'm not living wisely, when I'm making that choice to walk down the way of darkness, not the way of light, we get mad at, mad at God as if he's not saying, I'm right here. As if he's not saying, if you want wisdom, ask me for it. James tells us this. It's like we're not saying, Jesus, I want enough of you to just be okay, but I don't want you to fill my life because that's uncomfortable. And yet, friends, we know we're not called to live a life of comfort. We are comforted by the comforter, but the comforted means that we're going to feel discomfort and we need him to comfort us. So it's not going to be like this every week. I promise. Well, I, I guess I can't promise because I don't know yet, but um, we had the same structure as we did last week. We asked the same four questions. What is righteousness? Why is it referred to as this specific, in this case, breastplate? How does Satan like to wage war on it? How does he attack it? And then lastly, what do we do to put it on? And so it, I, I don't think it's always going to be this way, but like last week, when we look at our list again of how do we guard our hearts, we just need to make sure that we are wearing the breastplate of righteousness. We walk in love like Jesus did. We expose the deeds of darkness to a trusted, godly, confidant, accountability partner friend. We act in wisdom. We choose wisely and not foolishly. We choose fruit, not fruitlessness. And then we receive your fill of the Holy Spirit. He's a, he's a fount that never runs dry. His grace, his love, his wisdom, his peace is a fount that never runs dry. If we abide in him, we will bear fruit. And if we abide in him, It'll show that we are continuing to remind ourselves that we need his righteousness and that we live out our right standing and our right living with him. Not because we've earned that breastplate, but because it's our dad's and he gave it to us to wear. Heavenly Father, I thank you for each person who's part of our service today, Lord. I thank you for who you are. I thank you for your love for us. And I thank you for um, the fact that you know our prayers, Lord. You know our deeds of darkness, and you love us anyway. You know our struggles, and you love us so much. You know the fact that there are times when maybe we want to give up following you, or we want to give up pursuing you wholeheartedly, or instead of our fill with you, we just want a little taste. But Lord, I pray that we would be able to be people. to fix our eyes upon you, to walk as you walked, to expose those dark deeds, to act wisely, and then to receive our fill of you. So Lord, may we abide in you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the podcast. We want to be a church where people are changed by God to change the world. If you want to partner with us in this way, you can start by doing these two things. The first, if you haven't subscribed to this podcast, you can do that by hitting the subscribe button wherever you're listening, so you can stay connected with us and we can broaden our reach. And the second 
And this might be the most important thing you do. Share this message with someone you know. And as always, remember you are prayed for, cared for, and loved. See you next time.